Please stand for the reading of the word from Philippians 3. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is not troublesome to me, and for you it is a safeguard. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, even though I, too, have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to the zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness of God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and sharing in the sufferings of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. If somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning, church. Uh, it is a blessing for me to be here with you this morning. Anytime I uh, am honored to try to hear what God might be saying to this church that I love so much through me, I always feel more comfortable if uh, the last word is not me, but God. Uh, and so uh, we're going to do things a little bit differently today. When I'm done, um, I am going to just stop talking, which is usually a pretty good principle. Um, and instead, what I, what I want us to do is I want us to notice the Spirit of God that maybe is here in this room with us. And so I'm going to light this candle, and we will have 30 seconds of silence. Can we do that? We can do 30 seconds of silence. I want us to just take note of maybe what God is doing. And then, as a benediction to ourselves, we will stand and we'll say the Lord's Prayer together. Does that sound good? We can do something different? Great. Thanks for coming along with me. Uh, I want to start by clearing up a common misconception this morning. And by common misconception, what I really mean is that for a really long time, I was wrong about this. And uh, if I call it a common misconception, maybe you can own it too, and I won't feel so alone. Um, we can share in each other's sufferings this morning. Uh, the, the common misconception is that Saul of Tarsus does not have his name changed by God that day when he uh, meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. We kind of think that Saul becomes Paul, kind of like Abram becomes Abraham, or Sarai becomes Sarah, but that's not what happens. What happens is that for the first half of Saul's life, mostly, he is living in the Aramaic or Hebrew-speaking part of the world, and so he is quite comfortable walking around being called the name of Israel's first king, Saul, Saul of Tarsus. But when Saul goes to the Greek-speaking part of the word, world, he has a little problem. Uh, maybe it might be that Saul in Greek sounds like a dirty word. And so he can't go around proclaiming the good news of Jesus because 
uh, with the name like Saul because he just kind of has a hard time getting any sort of credibility. And I'm not going to tell you what that dirty word is right now because that would be too embarrassing for us. Uh, but you can Google it. And uh, if you Google it, students, children, you can just tell your parents, I'm just studying the Bible. Uh, but I say that to say that Paul, Saul, spends his days kind of living a double life. The first half of his life in predominantly the Aramaic or Hebrew-speaking part of the world, he's Saul. And then in the second half of his life, he mostly goes around calling himself Paul. He is a man with a foot in two different worlds. The people who know him as Saul, the Pharisee, might look at his life as Paul, the follower of Jesus, and might say to themselves, oh no, his poor mother. In our text today, Paul writes to the Philippians that he has gained everything in life. But I'm pretty sure that the people who know him as Saul, that is, the people who know the young man by his Hebrew name, those people would maybe look at Saul and say, he's just thrown everything away. He was such a good boy. Look at him now. He's broke. He's, he's gone to the Gentile part of the world. He's writing letters to the Gentiles. He's eating with Gentiles. He's begging for money in these letters to the Gentiles. He's in jail. You know, he used to be kind of a, a bit of a rising star. He went and studied under Gamaliel. And that's like the Jewish version of getting into Harvard Law School. What's he doing now? He's begging for money from Gentiles, from jail. Well, the people who knew him as Saul wonder what went wrong. How could such an accomplished young man lose everything so quickly? We tend to look at Paul's life and think that he was a pretty good guy. But I think that the people who knew Paul, Saul, growing up, think that um, he's kind of made a mess of it, everything. What's he doing now? He's a tent maker? My, my, my. He used to be a Pharisee. Because you see, we're kind of trained, those of us who have heard the story of Jesus, we are kind of trained to see the word Pharisee and think, well, those are the bad guys. We're kind of conditioned to assign to them all sorts of negative um, motives and, and objectives, but I don't know that that's necessarily fair to the story of God leading up to Jesus. The people who knew Saul as, knew Paul as Saul, probably held being a Pharisee in pretty high regard. Pharisees cared about God's law, and Saul of Tarsus works really, really, really hard to become a Pharisee and to become an expert in God's law because God's law mattered. And his mama was probably pretty proud of him. The Pharisees insist that all of God's covenant people follow the law strictly because laws, God's law is good and for our benefit. If it is followed, God's law leads to life. And this can't be overstated. The way that the Hebrew people believed that they knew God is through the law and righteousness under the law. 
There is no way of knowing God apart from the law. And so, the Pharisees care quite a bit about God's law because the kings of Israel did not. And when Israel's kings have not followed God's righteousness and they have practiced injustice, Israel has experienced completely disastrous consequences. Long ago, long before Saul and even before Jesus, Israel's kings have forgotten God's law and they have stopped participating in the righteousness of knowing God. They're they're kings, they keep up their religious traditions. Uh, They keep up appearances, but they abuse their power. They force all sorts of people to build their towers and their palaces more grand, and then they don't even pay the people for their labor. They abuse their own people, and God sees the kings going to worship with their great offerings that are meant to impress everybody and their great flowing robes and going to make a grand display of religious hypocrisy. And through the prophet Amos, God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Israel knows God through the law. It's how they know they are God's covenant people. So when Israel's kings act like they're being obedient by stepping over the very people that they are making poor on their way to make their offering, God says, your religiousness, your righteousness is disgusting to me. I hate your worship. Israel's kings don't listen. And the effects are disastrous. God removes the hand of protection over the people, and the Assyrian Empire pours in like a hot vat, like a hot pot being spilled onto them from the north, and they are destroyed. Years later, the Babylonian Empire comes from the east and completely destroys Jerusalem. They go in and they make a mockery of God's temple. They destroy the temple. They carry away the Ark of the Covenant. Years after that, the, the Persian Empire does the same thing. And the reason, the reason why the Pharisees in our story today are zealous about God's law is because they are ready for God to finally come make things right. And they believe that the way that God will come make all things right is when God's people practice righteousness under the law. The Pharisees just want like concrete markers to know if the people are doing what God has called them to do. They want to know who is righteous, who among us is participating in God's covenant and who is not, because quite frankly, it's a question of life and death. By the time Paul is writing the letter to the Philippians, the Jewish Christians have kind of have this this pharisaical hangover. They have come and they have taught the Philippian church that God's law is to be obeyed because righteousness under the law matters. And the way that, that we know that you are participating in God's covenant, the way that we know that God will make all things right is by the physical marker of circumcision. It is the marker of the covenant. Paul says, no, we don't do that. 
we don't put any confidence in flesh. That is, we put no confidence in these outward signs of righteousness. But I think we might have to pause and ask Paul, what's so wrong about following righteousness? What's so bad about these outward signs of the law and God being God's covenant people? The New Testament theologian N.T. Wright says, righteousness are those moments when heaven and earth come together. Righteousness is when God reigns on earth as God reigns in heaven and everything is instantly made right. The desire for righteousness is a good one. It is the recognition that everything in our world today is not the way that it ought to be. And we know that. We feel that, right? I mean, just this week, a young man in Arlington, Texas, walked into his high school with a gun and shot four of his classmates. By the grace of God, everyone survived, but we live in a world where gun violence is a daily reality in the schools of our children. And we just got to say, everything is not the way it ought to be. We live in a world where for the last 19 months, we have lived day in and day out with chronic anxiety, disruption, and death. And it seems like maybe things are getting better. But the, the Delta variant taught us not to let our guard down. It tells us that we are just one more chaotic event that none of us have control over from going through this all over again. And everything just isn't the way it's supposed to be. We feel that. We don't just feel that out there. We feel that in our chests. Many of us are carrying terrible burdens today. To participate in this world means to participate in its suffering. Some of us walk around with burdens that others know about. Some of us walk around with terrible, searing pain. It's terrible, searing, secret pain that just grows by the day. Some of us just get so frustrated at ourselves because we know we are the ones who ought to change. We know we are the ones who, in our systems, in our families, we need to change. But no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we write down our new goals and plans to be better and to do better, everywhere we go, there we are. We just need some righteousness. We need God to make things right. We desire intuitively for heaven and earth to come together. So maybe we just start acting like the Pharisees. Maybe we start working like crazy to make sure that we are righteous. We achieve all the accolades we can dream of because we are fighting back the terror that we know just sits right outside the door. And we make sure everyone we know follows all the rule because righteousness matters. If we could just get all of our ducks in a row... Maybe we can just crack the code. Everything can be made right. Um, but that's not the story of, of Saul and Paul. He sits in a jail cell saying, I've got everything. And uh, it, it may not make sense. But the story of Paul testifies that righteousness under the law is just full of some false promises. 
One day when Saul is at the height of his achievement, he is on the road from Damascus, from, from Jerusalem to Damascus. He has just witnessed the, the murder of an early Christian named Stephen. And he gets promoted. He is commissioned to go to Damascus and root out all of the Christians that are building a church there. And on the way to Damascus, a bright light knocks him to the ground. And he hears, and the people with him hear a disembodied voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul says, who are you, Lord? And the disembodied voice says, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and you will be told what to do. Saul, blinded by the light, he's led to Damascus where the very Christians he was going to go arrest take him in. And they speak to him about the story of Jesus and what Jesus has already accomplished through the cross. And Ananias, a Christian leader there in Damascus, puts his hand on Saul and says this, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Paul is baptized and immediately something like scales fall from his eyes and he gets up and he goes away and becomes an expert in the mysterious disembodied voice that spoke to him that day. And in that moment, Everything that Saul had worked so hard in the first half of his life to build up. In a moment, he loses everything. That moment, his moral bank account goes from black to red, and he has nothing, nothing but Christ. And that's the moment. That's the moment where everyone knew Paul in the first half of his life said, well, that's when it all started going downhill for him. Paul goes to the Greek-speaking world to begin spreading the good news of Christ. And Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, yes, that was the moment. That was the moment where everything that was gold in my life turned to garbage in an instant. Those Judaizers, those that are teaching you that you must be circumcised, you must have this outward marker of righteousness, you must be circumcised to belong, have them take a good look at me. Have them look at my resume. No one has proven that they belong more than me. No one cared about the law more than I did. No one followed the law better than me. But every line on my resume is now an embarrassment compared to the all-surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. When Saul meets Christ on the road to Damascus, he hears the good news. He hears that the moment that, that God raised Christ from Death to life is the exact same moment that God raised Saul from death to life and every single thing he had achieved in his life in a moment meant nothing. So Paul has done for him, through Christ, what he could never do for himself. Paul discovers real life. And all of his friends, growing up, look at him And he knows how he looks. He knows that he looks like he is sitting in that jail, absolutely lost his mind. He writes from prison and from the eyes of a Pharisee, looks like a total failure. Unrighteousness in every way. But in the darkest nights in that prison, Paul has confidence 
a confidence that the law never gave him. He knows that he's not alone. Paul says to know Christ more, to embrace and be embraced by Christ more, well, there's nothing I wouldn't do for that. To experience the resurrection power of Jesus, I would gladly join in any suffering. I would follow Jesus to death itself. And Paul, in that prison, is for us a model of what it looks like to lose everything but to gain Christ. And Paul says, I would do it again and again and again. And Paul shows us, shows us what it means to lose everything. And I know I'm supposed to want that. I know that I should want that, but I, I, I don't like looking bad. I don't like the thought of being alone. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to lose everything I have worked so hard for. And if I'm being honest, I wish it weren't true, but I still really care what people think of me. I want to know Christ, but I am often afraid to share in his sufferings. What would we give up if we were just convinced of our own resurrection? What would it take to have a faith like Paul's? Faith isn't thinking better or trying harder. Faith is patterning your life in such a way that you see the ways God has already transformed you from death to life. You are a new creation. Faith is planning your life as though God's promises for you are already true. That heaven and earth have already come together within your body. Faith is coming to worship. Not so that we check some sort of attendance box, but because worship is the celebration of the saints who have spent the last week noticing with everything they can the ways that God has already been practicing and building their resurrection. Faith. Worship is an act of faith. And then we share, we share the Lord's Supper together. We share communion together because each time we do, we remind each other, we declare the faith that is to the world foolishness. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And at that meal, we remember that the moment God raised Jesus from death to life, God raised us from death to life too. We have been set free. We share our lives with each other in deeper and smaller communities because letting someone really get to know you is an act of faith. It is saying, I can show you my weaknesses. I can show you who I really am because my weaknesses compared to knowing Christ are nothing. Let's know Christ together. Being in a small community of Christians is an act of faith. By faith, we are set free from the approval of the world, and we are born again into a community that actually matters. By faith, we empty ourselves to service to our community because we're trying to earn our salvation? No. Because by faith in Christ, we follow Jesus wherever he leads us. We participate in the resurrection, whatever the sufferings might be. In our moments of suffering, we follow Jesus and he might lead us to encounter our own cross.
But God meets us there too. In Christ, God gives up everything and humbles himself, coming to earth, becoming a servant, and giving himself over to death, even death on a cross. Because in Christ, God suffers so that all of us might participate in the resurrection. By faith, human performance means nothing. By faith, we see all the ways all day long. We might just sometimes catch a glimpse of them, of the way God has already brought heaven to earth. And in those moments, what we see is God wants to know us too. Highland, would you rise with me? And if you feel comfortable, would you raise up a hand as a way of, of giving a benediction to ourselves and to our city? Let us pray as our Lord has taught us, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.